Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, one of the surprises as we hopefully come out of the COVID pandemic is that lots of people are leaving their jobs just about everywhere in Australia, in the UK, in Europe, in America, wherever you look. It's being called the Great Resignation. Yet the fear was people would be struggling to find work. But here we are. They're leaving their jobs in record numbers and nobody is exactly sure why. That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Now, just before the pandemic struck, there were 152 million Americans working, if you ignore farm workers. This is from the uh, Bureau of Labor's non-farm payrolls, which is uh, seen as the go-to statistic for anyone interested in uh, looking at employment in the United States, like the government and the, the, the central bank. That 152 million fell to 130 million during the pandemic, so a 15% drop. But now it's back up to almost 149 million. But that means there are still... Three million people who had a job before who don't have a job now. Uh, and the progress on bridging that gap uh, looks like it's going to take a, a long time, even though there are 11 million jobs waiting to be filled. Uh, this is the uh, job openings uh, data that is also produced by the uh, Bureau of, uh, of Labor. So just before the pandemic, there were seven million jobs waiting to be filled. Now there's 11 million. So here we are. Many more jobs waiting to be filled, many more people who lost their job during the pandemic who haven't got it back. But while this is going on, we also have the Great Resignation. In September alone, 3% of Americans quit their job. Just before the pandemic, the quit rate was about 2.3%. Just after the 2008 financial crisis, when everyone was very worried that if they leave their job, they might not get it back, the quit rate got as low as 1.2%. But now they are leaving in their droves, confident that with this new high in job vacancies, presumably, they'll land a new, better-paying job. There's uh, many moving parts to this. But what is driving this, do you think, Steve? First of all, it is curious that there are so many people still looking for work, and yet there are so many so many job openings, 11 million job openings in, in, in the United States. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is quite a, a fascinating thing. I'm really, uh, you know, it, it puzzles me, so I'm not going to say I've got the answers to it. Uh, part of it appears to be that you have uh, some sectors, like, for example, the trucking sector, where you, it takes quite a while to get the skill level up there to drive, you know, a, a semi-trailer. Uh, but the, because uh, workers were so um, suppressed you know, the days of the Teamsters Union are long gone and the wage rises haven't come through. And you apparently, you have, well, you've got people uh, driving trucks to go and collect containers from the wharves in San Francisco and Los Angeles. Uh, they are paid now paid in peace rates. They're not paid by the hour. They're paid in peace rates. And uh, that means that they're, when they're sitting in these queues, which themselves have grown because of the supply chain disruption, they're not being paid. So they're sitting there thinking, 
bugger this. I'm sitting here not being paid. I'm being paid a shit amount per container anyway. I might as well quit and go and find something else better to do. And uh, and there are other uh, uh, vacancies coming up. And then when that happens, you have jobs which can't be immediately filled because it takes time to be trained to become a semi-trailer driver. Yeah, I like that. That could explain all of it, couldn't it? It could be three million people there who haven't uh, appeared back yet because they're training for this new job that, they, uh, that they're that they about to take on board. I mean, it's, it's possible, isn't it? It's part, it could be part of it. I mean, you, you really, I mean, the American working class uh, has been screwed over well and truly um, by the finance sector in the last 40 years. And this is in some ways their first chance to get even. And they're not doing it in any organized fashion, but they're doing it by, you know, you can take your job and stick it. And yeah. then going to another position somewhere else. Yeah, they've got jack of it. That's three million people who basically, whether they are truck drivers or uh, taxi drivers or uh, waiters and waitresses that are paid below the minimum wage because because the, their wage includes the, uh, the the tips which they may or may not get. That's a uh, three million people who possibly just said, "Oh, we're jack of this," uh, and uh, yeah, we <laughs> we're not in any rush. I think that could be part of it, couldn't it? And then and you've also, got the you know, they've, they've, they've been, to some extent of the government spending, which you know, a lot of it went to the to the wealthy end of town rather than the poor. But nonetheless, a large part of it went on a you know per capita about six hundred dollars one time and twelve hundred dollars another. Um, yeah, that means suddenly people have got a buffer in their in their bank accounts they've never had before. So they've actually got a chance to say, you know what, I hate this job, um, and I'm going to look for another one. And uh, and that might also be partly it. The the fact that you've got the the freedom you know, give, given to you by government money creation. Uh, turning up into the economy, that might be also part of where the big, the great resignation is coming from. The other fact, of course, as well, which is supported by the fact that we are seeing uh, wage prices, the, the wages going up, uh, could be that people and we and we know that you'll never get a pay rise if you stay for the same company. Uh, people are mm. leaving to try and get a better paid job elsewhere, and so that's pushing wages up. Uh, and we're seeing that happening all over the world as well. Yeah, uh, I mean, in the past, when you, when you had a in, increase in employment, then you had unions that did go along and bargain on that basis that they had more bargaining power and they can push for a wage rise. Having slaughtered unions over the last 40 years, uh, you've now got an ind- individual bargaining uh, uh, world and there's been no bargaining power at all for workers, especially since 2008. Um, and in that situation, then it, it just comes down to companies having to compete to, to get workers away from other companies if they if they are short of labour. And so, bang, you get these huge spikes. You don't get the, in a sense, the union movement acts as a dampening on wage rises rather than an amplifier. So, which of course the central bank's response is, oh, look at uh, look at all these wage pressures. We need to put a stop to that. We'll slow the economy, even though everyone's wanting the economy to speed up. Uh, we're going to put interest rates up uh, because we don't want uh, we don't want these wage pressures. We we want people to feel the hurt a bit more. We don't want it to be easy for them to to change jobs. The best way we can do that is to is to slow the slow the economy down. So their central banks doing their favourite job, making sure people are out of work. <laughs> I think I'll leave that. As, we could stop the podcast right there. Um, uh, I'm learning from you, aren't I? I'm just- <laughs> you're, on a, you're on a roll, mate. I'm- well, it always just amazes me. And we've talked about it in the past. And this is just part and parcel of it. This whole thing about, you know, the, the natural level of employment 
and well, the natural uh, rate of unemployment. Yeah, no, exactly. And, na- and, and, non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, which is one of the many fantasies of Milton Friedman. And, and, and that fantasy is, is then what central bankers have come to believe is a real world, and they're forever trying to measure the damn thing. And when you take a look at it, it's just a lag response to the current rate yeah. of unemployment. But in the meantime, they'll say, well, okay, because of that, because we've got uh, an a, a, a natural level, uh, we will, uh, we'll have to push interest rates up, and, uh, and people will lose their jobs as a, as a consequence of that. And that's actually what they're, they're aiming to do. Yeah, yeah. And that's why uh, I'm thinking Unelected representatives taking your job away from yeah. you. Um, uh, so they could... They they, they almost certainly will do the same thing, won't they, if we see that this this uh, wage inflation continues. And, and that's potentially what could happen. And, and in, a, in a classic way, that can then trigger a downturn because, the, again, they're not aware, the central banks themselves, because there's half staff by neoclassical economists, aren't aware of the dangers, the danger of the high level of private debt. They And I've seen this in my discussions with Paul Krugman. They don't think there's any particular problem that matters about the level of private debt because one person's asset is another person's liability. And if you put the interest rate up, yes, you make debtors pay more, but creditors get more money and the creditors will spend more and the debtors spend less and it all balances out. And that's total bullshit because it's the banks that create the money. And if you have people deciding they can't afford to be creditor anymore, then people pay their debt down and the money supply falls. And you have a crisis like the 1920s all over, 1930s all over again. They're not, they're not, we're not saying it's going to be that deep. But yeah, this would be a case where central banks, rather than fine-tuning the economy, end up crashing it. Yeah, and it could be driven by a number of factors. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? And you made the point that these are very dangerous times because they're, we're fine-tuning a situation where the numbers are so large, are so out of kilter, uh, that if they, if they get it wrong, it really could uh, fire up a uh, disastrous repercussions. But uh, back to other reasons. So apart from the fact that people are there seeing the opportunity now, the ununionized people able to say, hey, at last our chance to try and get a, a decent pay rise, having been under the thumb for so long. And you can understand why they feel like that in this uh, in this day and age where we've got people on uh, uh, very low minimum wages. And, and uh, zero, zero hour contracts as well, which is just yeah, appalling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, Microsoft put out a report in March that said 40% of the workforce were ready to change their jobs. Now, these are people using Microsoft products. So I think they're probably not representative of the economy at all. So this would be more office workers. Uh, and they're saying that there's a demand now for a more hybrid way of working, and this might be part of it as well. Obviously, there's a vested interest in Microsoft saying there's a, people are demanding a more hybrid way of working. What they really need is a uh, is a, a, a work Microsoft a, Teams. We've got to get them Microsoft Teams. Team, teams team working work exactly, yeah. and uh, an Office three six five. Which time you, trying to get the computers to work from home. Exactly, yeah, an Office three six five, which you can use from anywhere. It's all beautiful stuff. Uh, so obviously, the vested interest in saying that. But I wonder whether that's part of it as well. People are looking for that uh, that. Hybrid way of working because there's this reassessment of values, isn't there? Rather than making more money, perhaps people want a better life. Although that you know they are arguing for more wages as well, but uh, but also I think you know I talk to a lot of my friends who used to um, do the commute daily into London, and they are jack of that. They're not going to do that again. And the government's helping with that, by the way, because a couple of weeks ago they announced that uh, that, that uh, rail fares were going to go up by another three or four percent. Having gone up a similar amount last year, so they're, they're oh, outpricing God. it for <laughs> outpricing it for as many places as possible who can home. squeeze people. Yeah, exactly. So, and I mean, it's not helping the situation. People are bound to say, "Well, no, let's go for an easier life. Let's work from home." And uh, you know, the pressure is on for companies to accept that that needs to be the the new way of working. I think. So, I wonder whether if you're in a company that says, "No, we're not going to do that," people just go, "Okay, see you later. I'm part of the Great Resignation." 
Thank yep, you. Yep. Is it happening in the UK as well? Yeah, it is. There was a survey by Randstad, I'm looking at now, which is just before Christmas, saying 69% of 6,000 workers that were surveyed said that they were confident about moving to a new role in the next few months. Well, we're sort of halfway through that. Now, I wonder if they have. 24% said the plan is changed from three to six months. So it's really a lot of people just changing their fundamental values, isn't it? And, uh, and you can understand it because the, 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 the COVID pandemic has just been a slap in the face uh, to, to business as usual. And then in that situation, you're forced to be back home. Uh, a bit more contemplation can occur. And you can imagine people saying, I don't like the mm. life I'm leading. How can mm. I change it? Yeah. Well, get a new... Uh, oh, not the wife. Yeah, the work. Absolutely. The <laughs> the uh, the Microsoft survey also showed uh, 54% globally feel overworked. 39% feel exhausted. Uh, and they they can use through the use of Microsoft Office online. They can see now that people are in more meetings, longer meetings, more meetings called at short notice, more documents being produced. Now, some of that will be because people are working home more than they did before. But um, but yeah, and I've heard that a lot as well. The meetings have gone up because of the pandemic. Yeah, I'm, do you know why? It's because people are sitting at home lonely and they feel like they need to talk to somebody. And then you've got bosses, and you've got bosses <laughs> who also feel if you're not in a meeting, you're not doing any work. So I need to. If you're working from home, I want to see you. So there's a chunk and of that. I must say, my my, my son-in-law um, has got a new job and he's doing extremely well at it as a programmer for a bank in Thailand. And he's been working at that job now for almost a year, and he hasn't met anybody. Yeah. Yet. Amazing, isn't it? Face-to-face. It's all been virtual. Yeah, which also gets on to the next thing that this Microsoft survey. I'll get off. This is my last point from the survey. I just thought it was an interesting read. Uh, was workers not feeling connected because of the digital world. So this efficient online world might not be good for our mental health. So people might be switching jobs because they want to feel more fulfilled and less stressed. But, of course, you know, they might just be switching from one online job to another online job. Uh, so maybe this will all switch back again. This great resignation will slow down and people will go back to the old way of working. I don't know. There's a lot of theories as to why this yeah. is happening, aren't well, there? I mean, it'll be intriguing to see what happens when climate change forces us to have much shorter supply chains than we currently have. Uh, and, and that might force a lot more, uh, you know, face-to-face work in, in companies that are necessary to produce the goods we used to import. Um but, uh, I mean, my, my own personal experience, funnily enough, has been quite positive of that distance work because two of my favourite research colleagues are Matthias Griselli in, uh, in Hamilton near Toronto in Canada and then uh, Tim Garrett in uh, the University of Utah. And uh, we you know, work brilliantly when we get physically together. We, we did that once. Uh, but we had, because of COVID, we had two of our three research meetings were online and the fact that you, you, what it meant was you'd have your meetings, you'd work out what you wanted to work on next and then work like, like you know, Trojans uh, on your own until you need to get back in touch the next day and say what your results were. Um, so that, that can be a, a very positive environment, but you can't hop off and go for a walk around the local caldera, which is what we did when we were in Utah. And so you, you find a depersonalization. And that's okay with the sort of life that I lead because I have so many you know, personal contacts around the world. But for somebody in a job where they're not doing what they do, what they love, then to have a depersonalized as well just be the final straw. Yeah, absolutely. I also wonder whether, um, you know, the, the this great resignation, I want to explore more that point that you were saying about, you know, perhaps people are now using the opportunity to negotiate in a way that they're not being able to without the power of unions sitting behind them. 
uh, and, mm. and whether companies will have to adapt to that and provide uh, a, a better work environment. And look at the French, because I've always been interested in French labour law. They First of all, they limit the number of hours. You're only supposed to work 35 hours a week in France. If you, if you work more than 35 hours, you have to be paid overtime. You can't work an extra five hours without getting paid. It's against the law. And uh, and also, they in 2017 had the right to disconnect mandate, which legally entitles employees to not respond to business correspondence after working hours. I think if you do, if you do, then that the, the clock starts ticking. You have to get paid overtime. So if your boss sends you a, a something at seven o'clock at night and you've finished work at, at five o'clock, uh, if he wants you to read it, you, you've got to be paid overtime for it. So, uh, and, and interestingly, the French are 20% more productive as a nation. Uh, I mean, you know, however you measure productivity, but if you take it on, you know, output by hours worked, they're 20% more productive. So they've got these limitations on how far you how hard you work, but actually their output is better as, as a result of it. So maybe, you know, there's a bit needs to be a bit of a rethink for sound economic reasons about how you restructure your workplace. Yeah, I mean, that, that is the case with the French, and the French have still got unions too. So, like, the, de, the de-unionisation of the world is very much an Anglo-Saxon phenomenon. And the idea was it's going to lead to a better world and more productive workers. But even Paul Samuelson, I, I wish I could find the quote. I keep trying to find it, and I, I know I've heard it, and I know I've... Uh, it's written down somewhere, but he says America is characterised by ramp, rampant, a rampant ruling class and a cowed workforce, and and that is a very good description of the state of America. Well, that's but because in America, the the, the 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 people on low incomes all believe that they are going to aspire to. They don't knock down the uh, the tall poppies because they think they can get there themselves. It's, uh, the aspirations keep them in check. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas the French. I mean, I must say a little quote from Mark Lavoie, who's one of my favourite uh, favorite non-orthodox economists and, and a great friend as well. But Mark is French-Canadian, and uh, at one point he was offered a position for a visiting position at a university in France. And I saw him after about a year and a half or two of living there. And he was saying he, when he was in Canada as a French-Canadian, he'd see people saying, oh, the French are different. And he's saying, oh, no, this is just, you know, um, uh, a sort of form of cultural racism. No, uh, they, they, you can't distinguish them from the rest of the, uh, the planet that way. And then he, after living there for a couple of years, he said, look, France is the only country in the world where on the national day, something like 3,000 cars will get torched. And he said, yes, the French are different. And uh, and the capacity for direct action and demonstration in France far exceeds what you see in the United States or the UK or, and or Germany for that matter. And and, and so they they and this ends up being written into their laws. So the laws then end up protecting workers and saying you can't infringe upon workers uh, workers' rights in the way those gross Americans do. Yeah, yeah. Well, the UK used to be quite good at torching their own cities. They've uh, not doing so much of it lately. I have, I have to admit. So is is productivity important? Does that fit into the picture? It actually shot. It's actually shot up in terms of uh, output per hour work during the pandemic. But I, I think that's because a, a chunk of it is uh, less hours have been worked in total, uh, and uh, and also there's a, a lot of manufacturing of pharmaceuticals, which is uh, uh, which is highly productive. So we can probably you can probably get too obsessed with looking at productivity as a as a top I, I line. Think, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a critic, of the cynic of the whole idea of talking about labour productivity because. When I take a look at it from my, my macro modeling point of view, labor productivity is actually just another expression for the ratio of machines to workers. 
Uh, and if you, uh, as you look at technological development over time, uh, the reason it's propelled is that machines can, once you design a machine to do a task, then ultimately that machine and, and, and future variants of that machine will be able to put far more energy into the process than a human being can do. And with that extra energy, uh, then you get a greater level of productivity. And then as a result of it, you will also have ultimately less, less workers doing the job. So the, what you see as labour productivity is actually technological advances, meaning you can need less workers per machine uh, for the energy throughput of that machine. So it's partly illusory. Uh, but at the same time, you you, you do have, um, and, and this was what happened in, in, in Ford's uh, first production lines as well. Um, people would be sick of the machine, the lines being run too quickly, and they deliberately sabotage the line, cause it to slow down. Um, so uh, the, what what uh, Deming realised and what the Japanese took on board as well is that the workers have to feel um, dedicated to the to the job. They have to feel that they are part of the corporation rather than being exploited by the corporation. So a lot of Deming's ideas about how to manage a factory were empowering the workers. And on a Deming production line, every worker had a switch with which he could stop the entire production line. And the idea was... Uh, you would start off the production line extremely slowly because there'd be so many bugs in the design of the production line initially that things would not work well. Uh, in, a French, in American fact, they'd say, oh, that's you know, basically, I would be, fuck it, that can go to the guy at the end of the line to get it reworked. And so you'd have this re huge inefficiency from rework. But in the Japanese line, oh, it's this, my, my, my machine is not working properly or doesn't do the job that it was designed to do well, pull the button, stop the entire line, um, design staff call them on and say, you know, what's actually involved in, uh, what, what's, why have you done it, what's wrong? Look at the thing, redesign the station, and then on it goes, and, and until the next worker does it, and then each time you do it, the line gets faster and faster, and finally it operates as a very smooth machine. Uh, and I actually might add on that front, by the way, uh, the, the scale of, it's, it's very easy to be abstract about this. It, it helps to have your hands on on the machine. And one of our patrons, and I won't mention, but he knows who I'm talking about. And if you actually made, if you want me to mention your name, tell, tell me and I'll go right ahead. Uh, mention, actually, I hang you mentioned a bloody comment, so I can mention it. It's Brian Handley. Brian Handley popped a comment up just a short while ago saying that he was involved in a, in a production line redesign of a, of, a, of a car factory. And there were, I think it was 211 redesigns of the production line per day. Wow. That's breathtaking. That, yeah. that, that many points at which you redesign the production process on a daily basis. So, of course, you want workers to feel like they're committed to the company yeah. to be part of that process. And if you go the entire neoliberal, neoclassical, and you know, treat them as, their as, 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 uh, as, as atoms and don't care about them and you alienate people, um, yeah, of course, the great resignation is happening. Uh, yeah, people exactly. People thinking, I hate this job. How can I get out of here? So I wonder what he, I don't know what the figures are. I'm asking this question when I should really know the answer. But I, you know, I just had a thinking about it, listening to you talk. I wonder what it is in Germany, whether they're getting this great resignation. Because, of course, they have. They do treat, uh, I mean, they are a very productive nation, manufacturing nation. And they do treat workers differently in that they do tend to uh, have them on the board. Uh, you know, there'll be workers' the representatives on the board. And they, you know, will and they'll be shareholders as well. But at the um, same time, they've also the other, other thing you've got to take into account is the Germans have actually used um, the EU as a, as a wage suppression mechanism. Yeah. So wages in Germany haven't risen anywhere near as fast as German uh, GDP has risen. I think France is probably the better better example overall. Yeah. All right. I wonder also whether we're going to see uh, the the Great Resignation uh, if it is you know replacing the uh, the unions for short term. 
enjoy these days while we can. I wonder whether we'll see the great realignment of wages as well. So have a listen to some of these figures. These are for the UK, right? The average Uh wage for a train driver, £59,000 per year. For a nurse, uh, 24000 I would have thought slightly more skill required for a nurse than driving a train along tracks. Uh, Obviously, you need to make sure you stop at the station, uh, but, but really, it's, it's a, how, it's sorry, sorry, you are trained. How difficult can it be? But this, this, this is, I mean, that's what I can't, when I when the UK, I was just horrified by the level of wages because, yeah. as you, you know, you, Australian situation is not golden by any, any stretch of imagination, but nonetheless, nurses aren't paid shithouse wages like that. How anybody can be expected to survive in the UK on 25,000 pounds, let yeah, alone 24, their life, they're going to work each day. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And waiting staff, 16,000, getting even less. So the, this, this imbalance, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, an imbalance of uh, how much people get paid versus their contribution or their value of contribution to society. I mean, train drivers are obviously getting £59,000 a year because of their, their bargaining powers. They, you know, they're part yeah. of a powerful union. So the union has stepped in and ensured that they are uh, they're getting that wage. But nurses don't enjoy the same uh, union behind them, able to negotiate to the, to, to the same extent. Mm. And yet, uh, and also, you know, not quite so quick to uh, to go on strike because Mind they you, are must, dedicated to their patients. Yeah, the personal anecdote, friend, I was going out with a nurse uh, way back in about like 40-something years ago, and they were... They were equally sick of being they paid, paid trivial wages. They basically tra- treated as trainees when they were fully trained employees of the hospital. And it was the whole thing. They, they, the nurses won't go on strikes. So we don't need to pay them any more money. And they finally had it, and they went on strike. And I think they got about an 80% pay rise. And and that brought them to the stage where nursing was again a, a decent profession to uh, to work in. So you know the the, the angst and the and, and the anger and the lack of uh, supply of new nurses was 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 inverted. And I think the Brits need the same sort of thing, particularly after this COVID crisis. You know, pay the bloody nurses a wage that uh, that, that actually you know at least makes it somewhat reasonable to risk your own life going to work each day. Yeah. So that was a nursery. Have you been out with a train driver as well? I think uh, when I first met you, you got, you, you got out with a train driver called John, weren't you, for You're a while? Roll today, mate. <laughs> so, look, when companies don't pay very well, we are actually subsidising that company, aren't we? Because those those workers are going to claim benefits to, to bridge that gap. We've seen hmm. in the UK this big increase, increase in what's called in-work benefits, so, uh, you know, because they're so poorly paid. So they're getting uh, housing benefits, they're getting childcare benefits, hmm. all that sort of stuff. And there's an easy way to fix that, isn't there? Which is just put up the minimum wage. So yep. those companies... The companies are paying it rather than the uh, the public sector paying it. Yeah, you're basically saying if you, if you can't afford to pay a living wage, you shouldn't be an employer. So, you know, and again, like that's the, you're back to the conversation from, from one of the previous weeks. Um, that is sometimes where you, where you would want to subsidise a company initially so that they can pay a, a wage which is a living wage uh, from the outset rather than having to try to pay starvation wages. But then when they're a, a more, more mature company, uh, the subsidy goes and the wage has to stay, something of that nature. But conversely, I and mean, we've talked in the past about you know the, the the idea behind a universal basic income, and I know you you like that idea because ultimately that you know there's probably not going to be enough jobs to go around. But if we did pay everyone a universal basic income, then you you could find that companies are going to abuse that and use it as an opportunity to pay people less, couldn't you? Yeah, well, I, th- I think my vision of the UBI is that at some point where this simply would be otherwise, it's either going to be the UBI or it's going to be the Hunger Games. 
So I'm, I'm not thinking so much about, uh, you know, fine-tuning the, the wages right now as, as a future world where 90% of people won't be involved in production because production will be, you know, if we survive the global warming, and that's still a very big question mark in my mind, uh, then we'll be producing our goods off-planet. And you, you don't want to ship 90% of the population of the planet into space. Um, so at, at that point, you simply have to say we give people an income because you're a person, not because you're a worker. Right. Okay. Now, the point where it's, you start talking off planet, that's when I quickly try and draw the conversation back before we finish. How we- oh, that was a nice <laughs> reason. Yeah. How, do we, how do we stop that? I mean, it's difficult to know what's causing the great resignation. Should we be concerned about it? Or is it actually sounds like we're saying, well, it's probably a good thing. Actually, it's a great, it's a great reset uh, and uh, of, the, of the imbalance between the, uh, the employees and the employers. Uh, that's that's what I'm inclined to believe. Yeah, yeah. I think it's about time that that, that uh, employers found they can't rely upon workers that they don't treat well in the first place. Right. And like you know, the, the the growth of the gig economy, which has you know happened you know over my you yours and my lifetime, uh, it just appalls me. I feel horrified by the thought of. Uh, somebody going into work and getting there and finding, oh, sorry, there's no work, you've got to go home again, and they get paid nothing. There was a rule at one stage for part-time workers where if you get called into work, you had to be paid for a minimum of four hours. Uh, even if you get there and the boss says there is no work for you, it's the employer that should take the risk of that, not the employee. And, and this whole idea of a gig economy is putting the risk of capitalism on the workers. And uh, that's the sort of thing you can do when you don't have any power uh, in the hands of the workers to, to push back or you don't have a state that pushes back on behalf like like France does. So I, th- I think in this case, yeah, this is the, the great resignation is the is the kickback on the balls for the great gig economy. Right. But the big risk behind all of it is that all of that means that wages go up, central banks start to panic and say, oh, God, we've got to stop this, uh, this wage inflation and we're going to push interest rates up and we're going to screw any chance of getting uh, any form of economic recovery coming out the other side of this pandemic. Yeah, that's quite possible. Unfortunately, and that's again a sign of why we shouldn't have neoclassical economists at all, let alone running central banks. Well, I mean, we yeah, well, we can have them. It's just we don't want them employed in the uh, in, in the. No, I'm actually got to the point where I want to eliminate a lot of. Well, them. I'm sure. Um, no, I mean, you'd I be happy for them to work in ice cream shops or uh, that's true, or looking after the elderly. Shops. You just don't want them in in well, I'd, jobs. I'd give the universal basic, you know, say yeah, get get the f out of here and stop stop fucking up. Uh, so 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 stuffing up the economy. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Anything right. to retire the other th- them and get them out of positions of power. Right. Okay. When you when you start talking about off planet, and then when you start swearing too much, that's time for us to go. So we'll leave it there. Oh dear. Uh, okay. <laughs> Good talk again, Steve. Catch you next time. Okay, bye-bye. And that, by the way, is how this podcast sounds in full. If you are not a subscriber, normally you only get a 10-minute chunk of it, but we gave a free one for you today. Uh, but subscribe so you can hear them all in full. You can do that by becoming a supporter of Steve Keen on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash prof Steve Keen or become a subscriber at debunkingeconomics.com. That's it for this week. Back again with another one next week. I'm Phil Dobby. Back with Steve. See you then. 
If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.